We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke this morning, or at least eventually we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 1. The title of my message is simply this, Change is Coming. Now for us, the change I'm talking about took place 2,000 years ago. But for each one of us, as we continue to surrender our life to the Lord, as we continue to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit, change is still coming. We are all being changed. We're all being transformed by the power of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives. And really, there are many things throughout our, the history of, of the church or, or since Jesus came to earth, there are many things we can point to that say, well, without that, everything would be different. Without that, everything would be different. And we would be true. I mean, without the cross, everything would be different. Without the resurrection, everything would be different. But without God coming to earth in the flesh, the incarnation, everything would be different. And when he came, everything changed. We were talking in pre-service prayer a little bit this morning about how easy it is to look at things from a, a wrong perspective and miss the big picture, the big reality. And I, we were talking about that in terms of the people in Jesus' time. The people when Jesus was born, the people when Jesus was walking the earth, the people that were around him when he started his ministry, and the people that were there when he was crucified on a cross. Especially the Jewish people. Because when we look at the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament really is pointing towards the Messiah. Especially in the area of sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Old Testament goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Did you realize that? When they, Adam and Eve sinned, an animal was killed that the skins of that animal could cover them. Amazing. And we see it all the way through the sacrificial system. And all that was involved in that sacrificial system pointed to Jesus, the Messiah. So today we're going to explore a little bit of the imagery in the Old Testament as we work our way into the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to specifically be looking at a man by the name of Zechariah who was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And Zechariah was a priest. And we're going to look at how God orchestrates everything. He always has. He always will. That doesn't mean every detail and our free will has disappeared. No, it doesn't mean that. But in His due time, He aligns things so specifically it's absolutely astounding. I want to read two verses in Luke chapter 1 and then we're going to do some background and then we'll come back to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. It says this in reference to Zechariah. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of that priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. There is so much imagery and so much meaning in those two verses that we miss if we don't understand a little bit about what took place in temple worship at the time of Jesus. 
we need to remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, or in the Gospel of Luke, it's really like Old Testament times. Until Jesus' crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, Old Testament stuff still was there. The whole sacrificial system was still in place. We need to remember that God had chosen centuries before Israel as his chosen people. He chose Abraham. He chose to reveal himself to the people of Israel. He spoke directly to some. He revealed himself in the law when the law was given. He revealed himself in the covenants and the promises that he had. He demonstrated to his chosen people, Israel, his nature, his will, who he was. In the Old Testament times leading up to a near, let's say the Gospel of Luke's time or Jesus' birth, up to that time, they had the Scriptures of the Old Testament as as we know them. If you wanted to know God, if you were a Jewish person and you wanted to know God, you read the five books that Moses wrote. Then you would read the historical books and you would read the prophets, the major and minor prophets. And there was a lot of oral tradition that was also being passed down. You would know. But in all of that, the ultimate or the most climactic a thing that it pointed to was the Messiah, Jesus, as we know, looking back. The Messiah, the promised one, as they looked forward. And there were so many prophecies, so many prophecies about the Messiah, the one who was to come. I'm just going to rattle off a few. And at the time, they didn't realize what, what, they, what they meant. And we get to look back and we can easily say, how did they miss it? But put yourself in a certain situation and, and something's happening that's just changing everything around you. It might even be changing so dramatically there's confusion, there's questioning, there's wondering. It's starting to irritate you. And all you focus on is what's going on right at that moment and you don't look into the big picture. Sometimes we can't even see the big picture. But in Genesis chapter 3, it was already prophesied. When Adam and Eve had sinned, when God came and spoke to them and he was putting the curse on, the, on the, uh, Satan, on the snake, you know, he said, there is one who is going to come and he is going to crush your head, the Messiah. In Isaiah 7.14, born of a virgin. Isaiah 11.1 1 and 53, Messiah would be called, the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. In Isaiah 52 and 53, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah 31, Messiah would bring a new covenant. Zechariah 11:12, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 12:10, he would be pierced in his side. In Malachi 3:1, he would be preceded by a messenger. And Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Messiah would be preceded by Elijah, the prophet. And those are just like 12 or 13 prophecies out of hundreds of in the Old Testament, that they would have known about, that they would have read about. And yet, most of them missed the Messiah when he came. So they had all of that, God revealing to himself, revealing himself to everybody, and then something happened. 400 years, approximately, of silence from God. God's chosen people who he had been revealing himself to, he had been speaking to them through prophets. In early days, he spoke to them directly. 
He'd spoken to them through angelic messengers. And all of a sudden, nothing for 400 years. During that 400 years, they just kept doing what they were supposed to be doing. The whole sacrificial system, the following of the laws, doing it over and over and over for 400 years. But change was coming. And it was coming in the form of God in the flesh coming to earth. What they had during that whole time was this sacrificial system that was in place. You need to understand that it was only by the sacrifices, it was only by the shedding of blood that sinners could approach God. And when I say approach God, the temple was the the place where the presence of God was. The only way that a sinner could approach God in that sense was to bring a sacrifice, something that was going to be killed and its blood shed. You could bring it. But even if you brought the most perfect sacrifice, a spotless lamb, you didn't get to sacrifice it yourself. You had to hand it over to a priest. And it tells us in the traditions that when you handed it over to the priest, you put your hand on its head. Symbolic of your sins being transferred from you to that animal. And then the animal was killed and placed on an altar that we'll talk about a little bit more in a little while. Only the priest could enter in to the holy place. Put up slide three, would you please? And I know you can't see this very good. Kale, would you grab the pointer from Mike and bring it up to me? I forgot that. This picture is one you can't see very good. I'll give you one zoomed in in a second here. But (coughs) if you're not familiar with the temple, thank you. On the outside around it, this, there is much of the temple that's outside. It was huge. Herod's temple was huge. And we can see here they call, have this, what was called the court of the women. The women could only enter into there. Men could be there also, but the women could go no further. They had to stop right there. Then the men, which labeled here the hall of the Israelites, there was a narrow area there that they could come, and there was a couple steps up, and then it was the priests. And that altar right there is what's called the brazen altar. It was made of brass. At that altar is where it was like a big sign that sinners stop here. You can't go any further. This is where the priest would come and take your offering, take your sacrifice. And it would be killed and slaughtered and it would be burned on that brazen altar. And this took place hundreds of times a day. On certain religious holidays, they would be killing animals, in some cases, thousands and thousands a day. And the priests were the only one that could do this work. The priest was the only one that could go past this line into the brazen altar. And when they did, go ahead and put the next slide on. This would be back here. There's that brazen altar. Only the priests could come here. But only a select few of priests could go further into what is called the holy place and then here in what is called the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was in the midst of his people there. 
And when we talk about the priests and going no further, everything about this, and we're not going to go in depth today, there's no way we could, but everything about this is imagery about Christ, about Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But just to notice here even, when you go into the holy place, we have what was called the table of showbread, where there was a special bread laid on there. Jesus comes to earth, and he's called what? The bread of life, the imagery. We have the golden lampstand over here, Jesus, the light of the world. And we have over here the altar of incense. The altar of incense, the incense that would be burnt on there was symbolic of the prayers of the people going up to heaven, to the Father. Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying for us continuously. And then there were the sacrifices that were brought in here. Thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices. Millions over the years were sacrificed. All the blood being shed. And in the Gospel of John, John, in response to his couple of his disciples' question, he points at Jesus and says what? Behold, the Lamb of God. So much symbolism, so much truth being demonstrated for all of these hundreds and thousands of years in the temple sacrificial system. Then there's all these priests. At this time, we're not certain how many priests there were in the nation of Israel. Some of the estimates are between 18 and 20,000 priests. And I'm telling you all this, hopefully, to give you a little picture of what's going to be taking place when we go into Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah the priest. It will give, I believe, much more meaning to the two verses we already read and to more of the picture. Because out of those, 20, uh, out of those 18, 20,000 priests, they were into 24 divisions. So there would be something like 700 to 1,000 in each division of priests. And two weeks out of the year, each division would be selected to go to Jerusalem and minister in the temple. Now, when a particular division was called to be the one ministering, all 800 of them didn't rush to Jerusalem and decide who gets to minister. They would meet in their locale, and there would be a system of drawing of lots. Most would would tell you that it would be pieces of wood with names on them of all of the prophets in that division. The whole point being, it would be God's choice who was going to get to minister. Man's choice wasn't going to be involved. And then, after they would do that, those that were chosen would go to Jerusalem for two weeks and spend their two weeks ministering there. But there would be a series of four drawings of lots to see who would get to do what at the temple. Only one person got to take the incense to the altar of incense right there. In the Mishnah, which was the first written uh, Jewish uh, literature of the oral law that was passed down, the traditions of the Jews, say that there were five. Of all of the priests of that one division, only five would get drawn to be able to go past there. Only five would be able to go into this holy place. 
three of them would be selected to make sure that the golden lampstand, the oil was always there so it would continue to burn continuously. And they would work over here on the table of showbread, restocking the showbread, keeping the showbread table fully equipped. And two would be assigned to do something with the altar of incense. One of those two would take the hot coals from the altar of the burnt offering, the brazen altar, and they would take them in and they would put those hot coals on that altar of incense. And then one priest, and only one each day, would be able to take the altar, take the incense, a censer of incense, if you read it, a plate with incense on it, and sprinkle it on top of those coals. coals. Only one priest, out of all the priests in that division, would get to do that. And if you had the good fortune, most priests never got their name drawn once in their entire lifetime to get to go and put the incense on the altar of incense. That was kind of like the high point of this sacrificial service. Here's kind of the concept. A sinner would bring, and they'd be in their outer courts, they could bring their offering to this gate, and they'd have to hand it off to the priest here. The priest would make sacrifice of that animal. So it was like an atoning for your sins. It wasn't permanent. You had to do it over and over and over and over. But that would atone for your sins. And then the priest that would take the the incense to the altar of incense, it was like there, the symbolic of the prayers of the people ascending to the Father. So in in a strange way, it was like sins were being dealt with so that at that time, you had a familiarity with God and your prayers could ascend. He would actually hear your prayers. So when they would bring their offering and when this was all taking place and they would do it twice a day in the morning and the evening, the people then would be silently outside praying during this whole process because when the smoke from the incense on the altar of incense would ascend, their prayers were being heard by God. So you have all of this symbolism, all of this taking place with all of these priests And then when it was over, when they were finished in the morning and when they were finished in the evening, the five priests that had the opportunity to go in here and minister would then come out and they would go out here and stand before all the people that were gathered praying. And many of us, I'm sure, have heard this scripture being read, but the priests would come out and either in unison, all five of them, or one of them as a spokesperson, would give a benediction and they would say, and it's in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Anybody ever heard that before? Most of them have heard it many times in our churches. This is where it came from. This was part of that whole tradition that took place. As I said, most priests never ever got the opportunity to go into the holy place. The Holy of Holies, you may know, one time, for a short time, on one day of the year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. But what was so significant about this priest here that got to take that censer of incense and spread it over those hot ashes, offering up the prayers of the people, was at that moment, that altar was as close to the veil 
that separated the holy place where the priest could go from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God was. In other words, at that moment, there was no man on earth closer to the presence of God than that priest. And if you had to get your name drawn, you could only do it once in your entire lifetime. So out of the thousands and thousands of priests, out of the many hundreds of priests in that one division, one person got to go and do that, and in this case, at this time, it was a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was old when he was chosen to be able to go and do this. It was a time specifically appointed by God. Out of the hundreds of names that would have been in that container when they drew the lots, his name was the one that came out to offer up the incense at the altar of incense to bring the prayers of the people. Can you imagine, can you imagine the excitement in Zechariah's life the moment his name got drawn? The highlight of his life was about to take place in God's perfect, perfect timing. He was going to get to enter into the holy place of the temple. And not only that, he was going to get to bring the censer of incense to the altar of incense nearer to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies than any other person on earth. What an amazing honor he was about to receive. A couple other things quickly. The, the brazen altar, hopefully you can see some of these things with me, without me elaborating too much. That's where the animal was consumed by the fire. That's where atonement was being made. The golden incense altar, as I've said a couple of times, the incense represent the prayers of the people. Hopefully you begin to see a picture of our great high priest, Jesus. Everything about this, everything was pointing to the Messiah. And they had been doing this for centuries. In the last 400 years, they had been doing it with not, without hearing from God, anticipating a Messiah was going to come. couple of points of interest that have nothing to do with where I'm going, but I think it's just so cool. I got to share it. The incense altar, this one, was gold-plated. It was covered with gold. The incense itself, the, one of the primary elements of the incense was frankincense covered with gold, the incense consisting of frankincense. And then they had a special oil that they sprinkled on everything, consecrating it. And the primary ingredient in that consecration oil was myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Ever heard those three grouped together? When the wise men came to the incarnate God, and brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So much symbolism. So much for us to try to understand, and and the little brief time I've done it doesn't do it justice at all. But I wanted to give us a little bit of a picture when we start looking into Luke chapter 1 and 2, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh. 
to understand how amazing it is that God orchestrates things so perfectly. And he'll do the same in our lives today. So if you have your Bibles, or your phones, or your iPads, or whatever, all these are not going to be on the screen. We're going to look in Luke chapter 1. And I keep looking at the clock that is broken. Told the funeral yesterday, that gives a pastor so much liberty, it's scary. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 5. With the background of what I have shared with you. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias. And he was of the division Abba. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. There's significance even in that verse when it describes who they are. All the priests, all the priests were descendants of Aaron, the first priest. Aaron, the brother of Moses. It goes back that far. And you couldn't be a priest unless you were from the, the Aaronic line, lineage. And it was a special thing when you married a woman who was also of the lineage of Aaron. So we have Zacharias and Elizabeth, a special couple even in the priesthood. And it says they were both righteous in the sight of God, and they walked blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They weren't perfect, but they followed the law. They did all that they were to do, their religious duties, and God saw them as righteous because of that. And they had no child. What's the significance? Because this was the one problem in this good man and this good woman. They were probably at least in their 60s, maybe up to their 80s. They don't really know. But it says here she had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. This would be a disgrace to Zacharias and Elizabeth. As a matter of fact, a priest could divorce his wife if she couldn't give him children. It's how big a deal it was. Can you imagine this man, Zacharias, and his righteous wife, Elizabeth, how many years they had been praying and praying and praying for a child? I can't imagine. I I easily imagine when, when Zacharias is seeing his name drawn And knowing he is going to get to take the incense to the altar of incense, symbolic of the prayers of the people ascending to the Father, I can't help but imagine his prayer in the front of his mind was, Lord, I want a child. Unless he'd given up completely. It goes on and says, Now it came about that while he was performing the priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division." So his division, it was his turn. His name got drawn in this series of drawing of lots. And according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. I hope you see how significant those two verses are. How God has orchestrated this completely. I I think Zacharias was so excited and he didn't have a clue what God had planned when he got in there. And it says, the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. See the picture? 
At that hour of the incense offering, it was like the door to heaven. Your prayers could ascend, and God could hear you. They were all out there praying. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. 400 years of silence from God. No new prophetic voice. No angelic visitations as far as we can tell. He did not spoken. And all of a sudden, Zacharias is putting the incense on the altar, and there's an angel that's come to speak to him. A messenger of God. How surprised would you be? How surprised would you be? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And every time you see to the right, there's a position there of power and authority. He came with the authority of the words of God to speak to Zacharias. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Well, duh. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition. That's a prayer. I've heard your prayer. Guess what? I've heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and will give him the name John. His prayers were heard as he was had the great honor of putting the incense on the altar of incense, symbolic of your prayers going to the throne of God, and the angel comes and says, your prayer's answered. And you're going to name this son John. We'll touch on that in just a second. But if he would have had his wits about him, he hadn't had a big angel standing right in front of him, he might have thought, what the heck? John, that's not how we do it. We name him after us, me, my family, my name. Everything's changing. Everything's changing. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will receive, rejoice at his birth. And then the angel goes on and gives you really six significant points. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine. He will be a Nazarene. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't find that many places in the Old Testament, like probably none. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in the womb, and he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. To turn back the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Malachi 4, 6. And the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness, so as to six point he makes here of this whole thing, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow. Zacharias, you and your wife have been barren all these many years. You're going to have a son. And he's going to be no ordinary son. The Holy Spirit's going to fill him while he's even in his mother's womb. And he is going to be a forerunner for the Messiah that the nation of Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years. That's a pretty good day. But, Zacharias says to the angel, how shall I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, it's easy for me to get critical of Zacharias and say, geez, you dummy. The angel's standing here talking to you. On the one day of your whole life you get to do doing this, 
But can you imagine? My wife and I are really old. We've been praying for years. What is he doing? He's just saying, Lord, I, I want to do it. Give me a sign, would you? Well, he gets the sign, but I don't think it's the one he was looking for. The angel answered him and said, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Well, there's a stern little rebuke. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time, everything in their proper time. The sign that he got was he was mute. He could not speak. And the people outside, remember, he is in the inner court, the altar. Go to that last slide, would you please? It's just an artist rendering. But he would have got to go up. That would be the veil separating them, the altar. The people, as I said, would be outside praying during this hour of the incense being burnt. And the people were wondering, what's taking so long? Sounds like modern-day church. What's taking so long? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. He would have been there two weeks. And then he would track back home to a small place in the hills of Judea. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't from a suburb of Jerusalem. He was from out in the middle of nowhere. God has a tendency to do things with people out in the middle of nowhere. Aren't you glad we're in the middle of nowhere? And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Basically, she hid for five months and said, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from among men. It was a disgrace all those years. And then I'm going to jump across to just a couple of verses in, in verse 41. It says, And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary, Mary has now traveled to Elizabeth, her cousin. Mary has been pregnant with, with God's child. And it says, when came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and now Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to meet me? The Spirit of God came on her. She knew prophetically a revelation of God, the Holy Spirit confirming it. And then if you would turn, if you still are following me, in verse 59, John is born. And it says this, It came about on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Why? Because that's what you did in the Jewish religion. That's what you did in the Jewish faith. That's what you did as an Israelite. You named them after your family members. You named them after the father. And they were going to say, with the, what's the tradition, the tradition, the tradition, the tradition. And God is saying, no, everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. The way we've done it for all these hundreds or thousands of years, it's going to be different. You will name him John. And his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. What are you doing? 
Why are you doing this? And they said to her, and then they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called, and he asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And Zechariah's mouth is opened. And they asked themselves this question, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord is ter- certainly upon him. And he goes on and prophesies till the end of chapter 1 of Luke. And some of the things he prophesies, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The Messiah is coming. And in verse 76, he kind of reiterates or declares what his son John's calling is. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. God's plan is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Israel as a nation as a whole primarily missed what God was trying to do. God was trying to fulfill his promise. The thing that they had been looking for for thousands of years, thousands of years, was coming upon them. Following 400 years of silence, the angel spoke. And the angel spoke again, and we'll look at that probably next week when he spoke to Mary. And the angel is announcing, basically, change is coming. All of what we have been doing has been pointing towards the new thing, the change that's coming. This old covenant has served its purpose. It had demonstrated that there is a Messiah coming. It had pointed to the Messiah for all these thousand years. It had been pointing to him, pointing to him every time you sacrificed. But it's going to change. We know now that the system was going to be basically abolished because Jesus came as the Messiah to be his perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice. His blood was shed. His life was given. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He rose again from the dead, and he eventually ascended to heaven where he sits at the hand of the Father, right hand of the Father, interceding for us. In other words, the door was opened, the veil was torn, access to the Holy of Holies, which, meant, which represented the presence of God, has been now given to every single one of us that are believers. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to kill an animal. We don't have to shed any blood. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to somewhere. You don't have to come to a building. You and I, at any moment, at any time, in any place, can go directly to the Father with our requests with knowing with certainty that he will hear them without the incense ascending to him. Change is coming. And as we look to Christmas, you know, we we, we say things like, Jesus is the reason. And that is so true. But a lot of times, that has so little meaning to us. Jesus is the reason because he came and he changed everything. God in the flesh came to earth and changed everything. And we look back as the recipients of that change. But I think it's always good for us to maybe take some time to go back and to 
look at a little bit about those things that pointed to Jesus the Messiah. So many of us in here probably, and I would say I'm one of them, we always go to the New Testament. And the New Testament's important. But the Old Testament is still the Word of God. And there is so much for us to glean that gives greater and greater meaning to the New Testament. So I just want to encourage you to maybe spend a little time in the Old Testament too. Next week we will continue and we'll look a little bit more into Mary, Elizabeth, and the Incarnation. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would truly open our minds to understand in greater ways the truths of your word. Give us greater and greater revelation of how just amazing your plans and purposes are. God, so that we would have our faith built to a level where we can believe beyond reasonable doubt that you are who you say you are and that you have a plan and a destiny for every single one of us here. Father, even when things don't look like they make sense in our lives, you have a plan. Father, reveal the love that motivates you, the love that you have for us. Lord, that our hearts would be forever changed by the love that you give us so freely. I pray as we go into this holiday season, as people are more aware and more willing to talk about Christmas and the birth of Christ, that you give us opportunities to share the good news of the real reason that we celebrate. Help us to look behind, beyond family gatherings. Help us to look beyond the gifts under a tree. Help us to look to the greatest gift of all, the Messiah and what he's done for us. And I pray now, Lord, that you would watch over us as we go our separate ways. Lord, we pray that everything that we do here brings glory and honor to your name. Watch over us and keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.